Well, welcome to Zenergy, the interactive podcast providing resources for building a better life. I am Zen Ashay. I am your conduit, your coach, and your catalyst to that better life. A coach draws out hidden potential in a subject. A conduit provides a connection and a catalyst sparks change. So today I am connecting all of my Zenergy viewers that are going to turn in, tune in, and people who will listen to this podcast later with Jess Pettit. Did I say that correctly? Sure did. Awesome. Turn out. Sounds great. <laughs> great. And she has a guest of her own who may be chiming in, you know, uh, and that guest name is her dog, Magic. Uh, what kind of dog is Magic? <laughs> so we have three 80-pound rescue dogs, and Magic is uh, probably a Melanois Shepherd, which basically looks like Scooby-Doo. And she's oh. very vocal, and the neighbors next door are moving, and she's alerting us that there is uh, movement and has been doing that all day long. There's nothing we can do about it. But she'll make an appearance probably. So if you hear her, that's magic. She says hello. All right. Well, we, you know, animals are wonderful. Animals are part of nature. So we're just going to, you know, enjoy magic if she decides to chime in. Um, so today's episode is about charm and charisma in dealing with difficult situations. And um, when I had posted all of my topics, you know, I just had charm and charisma up there. And and Miss Pettit, she said that she has a very unique job. She has a very unique background, which is comedy. And she also uses that comedy along with her charm to deal with inclusion and diversity, which is a major topic right now uh, since 2020. It's been in the news. It's been around for a while, but we hear it all the time as almost a buzzword. So how did you get started? Did, did the comedy come first and then did you move into this or what, how did this happen? So I grew up in Texas with a very funny family. So there's always been storytelling and funny stuff in my family, but uh, for Texas, I grew up with very liberal parents, which mm -hmm. I later learned in adulthood were like Texas liberals, which is not really as progressive as I actually have become. But uh, so I've done, diversity, equity, inclusion, the hypocrisy of people's behavior um, since like middle school. Like I remember like my first research papers were things that made my teachers very nervous, but I was always connecting the dots around injustice and uh, I didn't have the language around privilege or dominant identities or how those things kind of showed up um, primarily because I was an upper-class white person in an upper-class white neighborhood, so we didn't talk about privilege, even though we had the privilege of living privilege. Uh, so then as I continued school, et cetera, I learned more. So I, so I would say that my emphasis on justice came first, but I also grew up in a funny family. Uh, I did stand-up magic. Uh, I did stand-up when I lived in New York. I uh, worked at NYU, uh, specifically in a diversity office, working and serving students, faculty, and staff around different diversity issues, and did stand-up kind of at night. Um, kind of in homage after my father died, uh, it was kind of a terrifyingly scary idea of doing stand-up in New York, and uh, that was kind of my, like, legacy after my father died. Uh, I did it for about three years, and then I guess kind of how I ended up to here is I kept getting fired 
because I kept pointing out as a college administrator, I kept pointing out how the university wasn't serving subordinated and marginalized communities, either connected to the university or surrounding the university campus. So it was a lot easier to fire me than to change those practices. So I, you know, again, had the privilege of going to go get another job and doing it again and again and again until eventually I just started my own speaking and consulting business where I now work with all different kinds of organizations, um, either as like a keynote speaker or author, consultant, et cetera, to be able to begin to have these conversations. And so when we first connected on a podcast group, um, your very first like topic was around charisma and charm. And I really do think that that is probably one of my most effective tools that I use in my diversity work with my audiences. So I was like, this sounds great. Let's talk about that. Well, you know, when I I created the process, there were so many different topics that I put up, starting with the A's and moving all the way. Now we're into the C's, D's, and E's. Um, So... We had gotten to the seas when, you know, I was in that podcast group. But, you know, the topic of charm and charisma, I think it comes from being a Southern woman and and seeing um, my I saw my grandmother. I saw, you know, my aunts and my, you know, even my uncles, but mostly the women have to deal with some very difficult situations and they use their sometimes their femininity, sometimes their soft voice sometimes a smile. Um, you know, I remember there was a poem by Maya Angelou um, about a woman who was always smiling um, and how when she when she saw this woman every day, she was like, she's always smiling. Why is she always smiling? And then she realized, you know, kind of like the Paul Lawrence Dunbar, I think he was the one that wrote, you know, we wear the mask that grins and lies, that hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. You know, this debt we pay to human guile with torn and bleeding hearts, we smile, you know. Um, and I realize when I listen to Maya Angelou and I realize different authors who were, who were talking about this, the, the charm that had really saved the lives of a lot of minorities. Um, and so now we're at a point where maybe it's not saving our lives, but maybe it's saving our jobs. Maybe it's saving our relationships. Maybe it's just making a way for us in the world. But I realized that um, it was a really it was a key skill in in terms of dealing with difficulty without, uh, in a sense, sometimes losing face or. Um, losing power, because sometimes when you're able to to be gracious, you end up becoming the one that is lauded in a situation where the others are seen as villainous because you stayed in that gracious position. Um, And, you know, I think that that was one of the successes that Martin Luther King Jr. had was he was so gracious. He was so... um, you know, the whole nonviolent posture and just the way that he handled things. People saw him as just so charming and so honorable and respectable. And it was very difficult for them to, in a sense, write him off as this angry black man or, or just say he has no he has no stance because 
look, he's trying his best to work with these people. He's trying his best to negotiate. He's trying his best to do this. And still he keeps getting all these doors slammed in his face. So I think that charm and charisma can be very powerful in terms of getting people to listen and getting people to respect you um, and just opening doors um, that being belligerent or being just outspoken uh, without the charm, without the charisma, because uh, Martin Luther King was very outspoken, but he was also very charming and gracious with it. Um, so I think that there's, it's a partnership that I think it's sometimes um, in this modern world, we lose some of the things that our ancestors used that were very effective because we think they were weak or they weren't as uh, savvy or, but they were, they were very savvy. They dealt with the world that, that was given to them and um, they did it with grace. And, and so um, I wanted somebody to be able to come on and talk about it because, you know, I had these thoughts in my head and I was like, hmm, who's going to pick that topic? It's always interesting to see who picks different topics because that person is like, oh, I could talk about that. And I'm like, oh, yay, let's see what they bring to it. So I think it's always exciting. Um, and I think it's very interesting, you know, that you come from a totally different background. You come from an upper middle class um, white family, suburban family in an upper middle class white neighborhood. And then you still were, as you said, in school, getting in trouble for asking questions. Um, I had the same experience. I went to Catholic school for a few years. I got in trouble for asking too many questions uh, about the Bible and religion. I got in trouble all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very interesting to hear that. And and you were doing research on this all the way back in, in, in school. So, you know, I think that sometimes we find our callings early and we just don't know it. You know, is that what you think that this was really something that you were maybe destined to do or called to do? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I think that, you know, I've, I've done uh, a lot of archival research specifically on, um, I use Mother Teresa, Gandhi and Martin Luther King as kind of these inarguable social justice heroes who were also very complicated and very frustrating people to work with. So they did great things, but they also were very troubled. I've done a lot of archival research in their journals and their letters and what their struggles were. And what's interesting about the calling, right, that I feel that they had, that I have, that you have, that most of us have, that the calling in itself is actually connected, I believe, to kind of charm and charisma because it fuels the action. But uh, similar when you were kind of naming like your aunties and your grandmothers, et cetera, is that the action can also be a de-escalation it can be a disarmament. Um, when I actually have had the privilege of working with a number of police departments around the de-escalation that is required by an actual conversation or an actual dialogue and like what it means to be able to be a human and that's not a weakness, right? So I, I appreciate very much the words that you just used because I think that it works when people are triggered and really defensive, as well as when people are really called to justice and called to action, the ability 
to understand that you have an impact with someone else. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, I, I distinctly remember, it's kind of a weird story, but I, I distinctly remember the first time I made a group of, uh, an, an audience laugh. Mm-hmm. And it was an addictive high, which, I mean, I'm sure I'm probably an egomaniac narcissist, right? Like, I'm sure there's a part of me that was like, oh, I want to learn this. But what it, to unify a large group of people in that one single moment was so powerful that it, I think that it was my first taste of what humanity could be, you know? And so then we can talk about like strengths finders and stuff and I'm a woo. And I think it takes a lot of emotional intelligence to be able to tell a story that's emotional, that also uses humor and charm and to be able to do those things with the idea of justice and humanity at its core is what is my purpose. That is, that is what I am supposed to be doing. Absolutely. That's awesome. Okay. So you may not know this, but I am a poet. I'm a spoken word artist. And so you're quoting up some stuff. I saw you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that coming onto the stage and connecting with the audience, it is absolutely addictive. You, it's not an ego thing. It's, it's, I think every performer experiences that. Um, you know, I think we've got somebody trying to say something. Okay. Such a great set. <laughs> Alrighty. Okay. So, um, thank you, Caprice Moreland. So, um, yeah, we, we feel that connection with the audience and we bond with them. And I remember the first time when I walked out on the stage and before the show started, I said, you know, I pictured the audience and I pictured my heart just going out around them and giving them a big hug. I just pictured that. I just pictured my energy just going out around them and just bringing them in close and saying, hey, I want to keep you safe right now. I want you to feel refreshed. I want you to feel just, you know, watered and, and, and nourished and just, you know, and I was feeling all of that. And then when I went out, you know, and we had this amazing show and everybody was coming up to me afterwards, I just, I felt so refreshed. It was like, they were using the words that were in my head. I was like, okay, thank you universe. But I I didn't expect to be used exact words that I said. So it was a beautiful thing, you know? Um, and I got my nickname Zen because people said I made them feel calm I made them feel relaxed, you know? So I think that I've been called charming, which I never really thought I was when I was younger. You know, um, I've been called charismatic, which again, I never thought I was, you know? So it's, it's interesting what people see in you, but I, I like how you've done a lot of research because I think we can learn a lot from people who come before us and we can learn a lot from realizing that people who we see as icons are human beings. Mm -hmm. They're not deified. They're not without flaw. They, they followed their calling. They did the best that they could. They made mistakes. Um, And we can learn from both their successes and their failures, you know, and I think that it's, it's very powerful that you say, Hey, these were complicated people who were out here doing these things. Um, and moving into now we live in some complicated times. You know, a lot of people like to put everything in a sound bites, but the world is not a sound bite. You know, we, we have to deal with the complexities of the issues that we, that we come across. So as you move through your, you know, you talked about, high school, 
your younger years. You started off at NYU in comedy, and then you decided to go into the keynote speaking and the diversity training. So kind of how did that start for you? And like, what did you learn about, like, what do people need to know? What do people need to understand about inclusion and diversity? What were like some of the biggest misconceptions as you began to teach people that you saw? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think misconceptions can be in a past tense. I mean, I think that this, uh, is, this is regular, right? So even though like some of these topics are a little bit more up for some folks, especially since George Floyd murder, they're, they, they're not new. And people have continued to be murdered since George Floyd, right? At some point, you just kind of yeah. track of things, right? And so for some, this is literally a life or death every single day, walking while experiencing a subordinated identity that, if it's visible, is a danger, is a target. While also, there are well-intentioned people on a very steep learning curve, so while you're like, you know, trying to learn something, people are dying and being murdered and suffering. So could you hurry up that, that learning curve? Like join your little book club. That's good. And do as many as you need to. But like, don't quit. Because even if you've done what you have done, you have to redo it constantly. So being the, the work that I talk about mostly is around being responsible for yourself. So I think that probably the first 10 years of my career, I did a lot of kind of this, the language that I use is an external training. So then you want to gather experiences and vocabulary and like look for difference because those differences do actually inform your thoughts, your behaviors, your reactions, your judgments, your assumptions. And so I was kind of working at that, but I wasn't noticing any change and it was burning me out, which is also how systems of oppression work, is that the people fighting them eventually burn out and quit. I didn't want to quit. So I flipped everything inside out and really started doing much more internal work around being responsible for who and how you are. So when we start talking about inclusion, the first question you need to ask is, who are you excluding? Which usually makes people super nervous because they're like, I'm not supposed to exclude anyone. Well, you can't invite the entire human population to your restaurant. You're probably going to have to narrow that down maybe to like a zip code or an area code or people who eat this kind of food, right? So like to be able to discern or to discriminate based on who you're actually targeting means that you're conscious of making those choices. And, and in business, we talk about like marketing segmentation and things like this. But as soon as it becomes an inclusion conversation, you're like, oh no, I, I include everybody. No, you don't, you can't. So can you get conscious of the conscious choices you're actually making? Because then that's practice for your unconscious behaviors, right? When we start talking about equity, a lot of times we get the word equality and equity confused. Mm, yeah. And I think that the way of looking at this is um, equality would be everybody having exactly the same thing. Yes. Which doesn't fit everybody, right? So magic. Uh, so like, let's say everybody gets a pair of shoes. Okay, great. Well, I wear a size 11 shoe, so that's only gonna fit like some people, literally. And I don't like heels. I seem to have a thing with colors and I really like like buckles or shoe details. Hope you do too, right? So that's a quality is that everybody would get the thing that I want. It's very similar to like the golden rule of treating people the way you wish to be treated. We call that the definition of being nice. 
But if I want to be treated this way, it's making a pretty big assumption that everybody else does. So then if we start employing the platinum rule, which is Tony Alessandro's research around treating people the way they want to be treated. But in order to do that, I'm going to have to like engage, ask a conversation, ask a question I don't know the answer to. But using that, then I can have a more equitable experience that actually meets the person at their humanity, where they're at. And then with that equitable experience, now we can get back to we're different. We have different experiences. We're living the exact same moment in a very different way. How fascinating. And that's what I try to pull all together. And I have not noticed much movement or improvement. Um, And it just needs to be repeated. Even if you did move or improve, you're just going to have to redo that thing. It's like sweeping the front porch. Well, you said a lot. Um, There is a lot of growth that has to happen. And um, one thing that I like that you said is that sometimes part of oppression is sometimes thinking that you know what the other people need. Because as you mentioned with the shoes, yes, I may need a pair of shoes, but I may not need um, a size 11 or a 12. And I may not need one with buckles. I may need one with some, you know, inserts in there that are going to cushion my heel because I get heel spurs, you know, but if you don't talk to me, you're not going to know that. So sometimes people who are in positions of authority um, without some guidance, they will put in these new initiatives. We don't want like I, I will give one from education because I'm a teacher. We had these programs, No Child Left Behind. Oh, that sounds so wonderful. We're going to test everybody. We're going to make sure that no child is left behind. They're not going to be able to move to the next grade until they pass this test. One size fit all. You got one day to test, you know, and there were so many problems with that because number one, kids don't learn at the same rate. Kids don't come from the same background. When you have a kid who's been in the country two years and they have to test within two years, could you go to another country that you've never learned the language and be able to pass a high school exam or a middle school exam in two years? You know, so it was a one size fit all plan that didn't fit a lot of people. And so it was called No Child Left Behind and it was supposed to be a move towards including these children that were supposedly falling through the cracks. But what it did was make a lot more kids fall through the cracks. And then it shamed them because then they got put in special classes and they got pulled into Saturday schools and their parents were all, "Ah, you know, you're not going to be able to go to the next grade. And it was a mess, but it had good intentions. So when we have a push towards inclusion, sometimes it isn't the best thought out process and it doesn't include the people like the teachers in that case. What would be your recommendations about how to better serve everybody? You know, so when you're talking about having a conversation, what do these marginalized groups really need? Not what you think they need, but what do they really need? I think that that's a very powerful thing. Absolutely. And the, the idea, like a lot of times I think the answer to that question often is like the empowerment of the marginalized group. They don't need any more power. They have plenty of power. Just shut up and listen to them. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, uh, right. 
recognize that them is a group you do not belong to. So it doesn't matter how many books you read or how complicated your cable package is, shut up and listen to the people that you think you're trying to serve, right? So even if we flash back to Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King and LBJ really thought a college education was going to be the great equalizer. I think a sense of humor is the great equalizer. Let's see how I turn out historically. But when LBJ and Martin Luther King really were the figureheads, right? They weren't doing the work, but they were the figureheads. They're the pictures, right? Of what a college education was going to do. They didn't take into consideration what was going to happen when we actually commodified what a bachelor's degree looks like that has now landed millions of people with an average of $85,000 worth of student debt hanging over their head that they will never pay off in their lifetimes, is that what we meant by a great equalizer? Because I don't think that's what they meant. I'm pretty sure that struggling people with debt was not on the T-shirt of like, no, 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 everyone's going to get to go to college. So under these really amazing kind of initiatives that maybe in the short term really do seem to be addressing exactly what is needed to quote unquote lift if you're not dismantling a system, you are lifting people into a jacked up system yes. and the system is going to win. So long term, when you look back and you're like, oh, we probably shouldn't have done that thing. Right. So then one of the conversation pieces that I'm so glad you're naming is that organizations, government associations, corporations, schools, school districts often make very short term choices I mean, if we want to do a little mini economics lesson, right, is that there's trends that happen about every seven to 10 years that are inside of a larger bell curve that happen every 70 to 100 years. So if you're making a seven to eight year choice, it might be great in the long term. But 100 years later, 70 years later, you may have decimated something. And so sometimes we're actually paying attention enough to then stop and say what happened here 70 to 100 years ago and then notice, oh, that's how we got here. And now we can make a choice moving forward, but will the choice moving forward be a seven to eight year choice? Or can we actually consciously make a 70 to 100 year choice in seven to eight year increments? Most people won't do that because that's too much. That's considered radical change. Mm. Right. That's very powerful, what you just said. I mean, that's amazing because when I think about change, real change, it did require dismantling and it required restructuring and it required totally stepping outside of the box and saying, let's throw everything out and let's imagine if we could do anything, what would we want and how would we do it? And there have been communities that have actually done that. They say, they've said, let's throw out the police department and let's, how would we, how would we police completely differently? Let's start from scratch or, you know, let's create a completely different school system. We want a school of choice. Now, how would we build it up from the ground floor, throwing out everything we know about schools, just thinking about what a school should do what this community needs and then where it can go in the future. And, and looking at how we got here, as you said, this is where, this is all the things that led to where we are right now. Let's keep all of that in mind. Mm -hmm. 
as we build this new system. And, and when you've looked at community cities, neighborhoods that have literally said, this is our history in this area. This is everything that's happened in this area. This is all the scars of the people in this area. What can we do to heal? What can we do to transform? What can we do to empower? You know, what can we do to give them a voice? And how do we go forward? You see these amazing people are doing things that you're like, oh, I didn't even know that was possible, you know? And and you see it here in the States and you see it across the, you know, the world. I think about some places in the world when they said, we're going to throw out all the drug laws and we're going to just treat the addicts. We're not going to criminalize their behavior at all. Why are we doing that? And then they've gone down to, I think one place was like an 8% recidivism rate or something like that with the drug addicts because they made them happier and healthier and gave them everything they needed. Right. Well, they didn't need the drugs because they were dealing with the drugs or taking the drugs because they were so miserable and they felt they had no choice. Right. Very few people wake up and go, you know what I'd like to do today is get super addicted to something and destroy my life and other people I care about. Very few people wake up that way. Right. I mean, one of the amazing gifts, can we say this about COVID yet, is if we go, if we're staying in school on the school track for just a second is so we've connected and I'm, I'm talking primarily about public schools to property taxes. And then we have charter schools and private schools. Right. So then COVID hits. Every school is on Zoom. Okay, well, everybody should be able to go to any school they want to because it's all on Zoom. Oh, no. You have to go to your school's Zoom. Why? It's not even in the nice building with the rock climbing wall anymore. Now it's just on Zoom. But we don't pay teachers a living wage. The teachers don't have the resources to actually connect a curriculum across multiple different kinds of platforms when they had to pivot with like a week's notice because of a global pandemic. And I believe I don't have any children. I'm not a parent, but I have been a mental health practitioner for many of my parenting friends while they have been homeschooling children to the point that I think maybe we're at a point in our country where we actually value the importance of education more than babysitting and that that importance of education isn't a skill that everybody just has, assuming they can read and write in a particular language, right? Maybe we actually do value education in a way that's not going to be linked to class or property values of homeowners, but actually to where we want our humans to be able to get to as educators and as students. Maybe that's a gift of COVID. I don't know. But if, if, you're, if, if you're referencing completely dismantling systems of dealing with uh, people who are addicted to drugs and it works because we're treating a human, maybe that can also be applied. I don't know. That would be amazing, though. You know, I just... I love to see humanity evolve in terms of evolving our thinking, shifting our paradigms. And, you know, one thing about the arts, and this is why I'm so excited that you bring in comedy. Um, as an educator, we know that people learn best when you reduce what they call the affective filter. When you make people comfortable, they learn. When you make people nervous and scared, their brain goes into fight or flight mode and they don't learn. They're just, they're busy looking for the exit, 
you know, they're thinking about how, how can I get out of here? They're not listening. So the fact that you use, you know, comedy, which is one of the things that, as you said, storytelling is one of the oldest things that we have, you know, people set in their villages around fires and told poetry and told stories that were funny, told stories that were heroic. So this is an innate part of ourselves that we were born with. And it's something that takes us back to childhood, takes us back to where we felt safe and, and, and nurtured and comfortable. And so I think it's very powerful that you use comedy and storytelling to get people to do that, as you said, internal work and think about what they can do and how they can see things differently. And, and it's sad that you're saying it, it, you know, that you see that we still have so far to go and it hasn't made a big difference, but I think, you know, any change is, is, is good change, you know, as long as it's moving us forward. Sure. And like, when I say not a big difference, like check your ruler, right? Like literally like Vikings are not, taking over and killing millions right. of people, right? Uh, colonialism is still happening. Failed attempts at genocide are still happening. Right. Uh, slave labor is still happening. Child labor is still happening. Those things are still occurring. They're not historical facts. They're right. a little bit more underground, no pun intended. They're a little bit more whispered about with occasional pop-ups, right? Um, but it is also the case that morally, I think our culture has gotten to a place where things are not as tolerated as they were as a whole, but just because it's not tolerated doesn't mean you don't know what to do about it. And that doesn't mean it's ended just because it's not tolerated. Mm. Right? There's tons yeah. of work that needs to be done. Oh yeah. I, I agree with you. There's all, you know, um, people will ask, like, why are you doing another podcast? There's so many. Well, we need another one. We need we need as many voices out there spreading good as we can have. That's my my position. And we need as many people out there doing what you're doing as we can have. You can't have too many, you know. So um, everyone who is moving the needle forward is is countermanding the people who are trying to move the needle backwards. And there's a whole lot of them trying to move the needle backwards, you know? So I definitely feel like um, we have to be in constant motion, kind of like um, you can't stay still in a current. You're either moving forward or you're moving back. It's, it's, so that's kind of my thought about that whole, why do this, you know? Um, and somebody will even say, I think there was a story about, you know, there were all of these fish on the beach that had washed up from the tide and this little kid was throwing the fish back in and somebody walked by and said, why are you doing that? You can't get to all of them. And he says, well, it makes a difference to this one. And he threw that one back into the, you know, into the ocean, you know, so as we're, you know, working against the tide. <laughs> It makes a difference to each person that we touch and each person that we inspire. Um, Hello, my name is Zenashe, and I'm really excited to bring this product before you. This is Zenergize Your Life. It's a goal-setting package, and I created it because I've gone to a lot of vision board workshops, but when I left there, I felt like all I had was images, and images are great, but I felt like I needed more. I needed 
books that I could go to. I needed affirmations. I needed journal prompts. I needed to be able to record songs that motivated me and movies and to be able to put in pictures of role models and ancestors and many other things just to have a whole goal setting toolbox. And so I looked around and I didn't find anything like that. So they say necessity is the mother of invention. And so I created it. And so this is Energize Your Life, volume one. And it starts off in the A's. It does go with my podcast. So you can actually listen to the podcast and get even more insight about these topics. For example, like abundance, adapting, accepting, authenticity, um, alternatives, aromatherapy, and other self-care methods. And 16 different topics where you can put goals in that area, insights that you have. You're going to have several of my insights in here about those topics. And you just have a whole page on that topic. And then you have this journal that comes with it. You have a motivational wristband. You have a bookmark that you can stick wherever you are in the book because it's not meant to be worked through in one day. It's meant for you to take some time with it and really develop your goals and your your way of looking at that topic. And you also have tabs where you can tab different things that stand out to you so that you can go back to it easily for reference. And also with this, I do have a Facebook group called Get More From Life. So I will be posting things in that group, you know, songs that have inspired me in these areas, books that have inspired me, affirmations that I've found, all kinds of different tools that you can reference as you're working through this book. So you won't be by yourself. You'll actually have Um, a reference guide to go back to. You'll have some materials to go back to as you're working through this book. And there's also a video that's going to be coming out soon where you can actually see me work with participants who have really raved about this product and they really feel like it has given them a lot of focus and a lot of direction in these areas. And they really feel excited about what they're going to accomplish this year. And Getting that excitement is is that motivation to synergize your life, to motivate yourself to move forward, to kind of leave behind the old and transform. And I'm wearing this shirt today that has a butterfly on it. And of course, butterflies are all about transformation, all about moving out of that cocoon. But the cocoon does serve as a support system, as a way to kind of transform yourself from the inside out. And so in a sense, this is, you know, like a support system to give you all kinds of tools because on the back page, you actually have 18 action steps with a place for you to put a date when you accomplish it. You also have a pack of stickers in here where you can put stickers when you, you know, finish things because I think that's motivational and I know that lots of people love to. And so as you deal with I wanted to just give you some time to talk about your topic, you know, because I always say that sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you're the expert in this area. So like people who are tuning in or people who are listening out there, what, what kind of message would you want to give them that you haven't said already about inclusion, about diversity, about our need for these things and about using, you know, whatever, skills they have to be a, a, a agent of change? Well, my, so, uh, it's a very big question and I'm trying to figure out which one to do that is also about humor and charm and, and charisma. Um, my motto, like my tagline of my book, etc., is to do the best you can with what you've got some of the time. Ah. So 
that's actually a pretty low bar, right? So like do the best you can, meaning like you're trying, it's not a perfect situation, but try. And if you can't try, at least try to try, like get the momentum going. Do the best you can with what you already got. You do not need another book club certification or another friend that's different than you before you can do something, right? Like you can do something and be prepared for doing something wrong, but you can still be doing something. Do the best you can with what you got. And some of the time is that most people are avoiding discomfort because they feel they need to prepare to be uncomfortable. And there is no way to prepare to be uncomfortable. You're just going to be uncomfortable. If you were prepared to be uncomfortable, it would be called comfort. That's very good. That is so good. So do the camera what you got some of the time. That is good enough now. That is that is great advice because um, I'm going to go back. I have talked about this book probably six or seven times in my podcast. There's a book called The Five Second Rule. And I can never remember the author whenever I bring it up. But she basically says you have about five seconds before you talk yourself out of anything that you have the impulse to do that would move you forward towards your goals. Because your brain wants to keep you safe. Your brain wants to keep you in your comfort zone. Your brain knows what it's like to be right where you are. And that's a safe space for your brain. So whenever you say, oh, I want to go talk to that person or I want to speak up about that injustice or I want to, your brain is going to kick in in about five seconds and say, well, maybe you shouldn't. So you've got about five seconds to act. And so she encourages people to when they have that thought, say five, four, three, two, one, and then do it. It's Mel Robbins is the, so. Mel Robbins. Now you're right. You're right. I can never remember her name whenever I bring her up, but I, I read her book recently. So yeah, you're saying do the best you can with what you have most of the time, you know, not I'm, most of the time, some of the time, some of the time, some of the time, some of the time. right. <laughs> right. Like it, it the, 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 when you do your laundry, right? Like I have a goal that while the clothes are warm, I should put them away. Some of the time that is true. Some of the time that occurs. Most of the time I just wear clothes out of, especially inside COVID, I just wear clothes directly out of the laundry basket. They're folded. Folded is half of it, right? But every once in a while I get some wild hair and I hang up all my clothes. I put all my clothes away. There is nothing on the floor. My laundry basket is empty. I feel amazing. And the next day I screwed up again. I got you. I got you. Some of the time. Awesome. Awesome. So um, your book is called Good Enough. Good Enough Now. Good enough now. Okay. I like that. I like the title. So tell us about your book. Sure. So as I was saying, I burnt out doing old school diversity trainings and I started listening to my audiences because everything always goes back to listening. And I realized that my audience members had a pattern of why they were avoiding a conversation or a relationship with a coworker or a family member or a stranger or something made them nervous. <clears throat> so I tried to explore those patterns, did a bunch of research around them and realized that again, my kind of social justice heroes also tr- struggled with those exact same patterns in very different ways and very similar ways. So I built this book specifically around being able to do good work while also being a very flawed human. 
you are frustrated by people because their life taught them to be that way. Mm. And that's giving, you mentioned grace earlier, recognizing that somebody's life, they have survived things. They have learned things in their life that have told them that this, how they're showing up right now is the best choice. That could be a very questionable situation, but what did they survive that led to this being their option? Right. That's a lot of grace. So if people make decisions of how to be, and then we can be more responsible for who and how we are, then we're going to be able to be more conscious of what we are unconscious of. And so I wrote a book called Good Enough Now that is literally piece by piece mapping out how I ended up this way. And then the each of the activities in each of the chapters gives you a chance to really map out how did you get this way? And then once you're conscious and responsible of what the way is you got to, then you can edit, then you can make changes, and you can affirm and keep the pieces that are really important to you, but you'll at least be conscious and responsible of what those pieces are. That's beautiful. I, I agree with that so much because, you know, I've heard so many psychologists say that a lot of our personality, I think they say something like 90% is set before seven. And a lot of our belief systems and patterns, they were set around that seven to 10 age or before. And so we didn't, in a sense, consciously come up with these patterns. We looked at the world around us. We made conclusions about how it worked. And then we decided what was the safest way for us to live in it. Mm -hmm. And some of those patterns were very helpful. And some of those patterns are extremely destructive and, and hinder us. And so, you know, there are a lot of people who do a lot of different things to try to become aware of their patterns. Um, they may do affirmations when they realize they have a bad habit. They may do meditation. You know, they may go through therapy, behavioral therapy. Um, I actually created a workbook series called Energize Your Life, and it's based on basically the podcast in a sense, but it takes 16 principles and you delve into each principle and you ask yourself journal questions and you do what you did. You put a person that really inspires you in this area, someone who's passed on, someone who's a contemporary, and you look at what you can learn from their life. And then you make a goal and an affirmation in that area. And I also believe, as you said, with the comedy in the power of the arts. So I actually have people think of a movie and a song that really inspires them in that area. Because I really feel like um, we can have playlists of songs that are very inspirational to us. And whenever we hear them, we feel, you know, uh, inspired and uplifted and, and, and motivated. And it triggers us. I believe in creating triggers for yourself that are positive. Absolutely. You know? and I, if we use the playlist as kind of a metaphor. So one of the other things that I really talk about, and, and this is coming from like, um, I mean, I have some subordinated and marginalized identities, but I believe I could do more work from my privileged and dominant identities at no cost. So I really focus and try to get folks to focus on their dominant and privileged identities because we all have them. We just have been trained to not focus on them, right? So like if you're a native English speaker or you're employed in the middle of a global pandemic, you're able-bodied. If people assume you're Christian, even you don't even have to be Christian to be assumed that you're Christian. There's a, a, a lot of dominant and privileged identities that we can begin to work with. And so one of the things I have learned in my own dominant and privileged life is that I have been told 
you're never ever supposed to make judgments and assumptions ever. They make you a terrible person. Well, first off, I'm already a terrible person and I still make judgments and assumptions, but the judgments and assumptions I make is that playlist that you're referencing because my life has taught me what language am I supposed to use? Well, can I use slang? Can I cuss? Is this gray sweatshirt? This is my nice sweatshirt. Is this going to be okay for this podcast? I'm making judgments and assumptions based on limited information because I want to show up safe and prepared. So instead of trying to tell myself I'm never going to make a judgment and assumption, it's be responsible for the ones that you do, but print that story out triple space with extra wide margins and seek edits, leave room for edits intentionally so that you can actually become more accurate. But you can't do that. You can't engage curiously, generously, authentically, vulnerably looking for those edits. One, you leave no room for edits. And number two, I don't gift you my conscious judgments and assumptions that I'm making so that I feel safe and prepared. And I don't shut up enough to like then actually become accurate in who are you what this is what i thought but like who are you and that level of listening and engagement is how we make better connections in humanity and that's that's all i do that's awesome that's awesome well i mean i feel like wow we've covered so many things in this podcast you know so you've been using a couple of terms and just in case there might be anybody that is out there that is not familiar or never heard these terms before. Sure. What do you mean by a dominant uh, or privilege or I think you said subordinated personalities. What do you mean by those terms? So the social identities where, so if we're talking about like race, gender, sexual orientation, age, religion, political beliefs, ability, citizenship, these are all social identities that most of us, could like take each one and then figure out, I refer to privilege as kind of randomly assigned unicorn points. So you either get them or they get taken away from you and you kind of don't have any control about it. Sometimes you can earn your way into unicorn points. So like, for example, uh, people assume that I'm a Christian. I was actually raised by atheists. I actually identify as an agnostic, but I benefit from people assuming that I'm Christian and because I live in a country that is dominated by Christianity, depending on where you are, it depends if it's Protestant or Catholic. But even though I was raised by atheist, I never celebrated Christmas. I know all the words to all the Christmas songs. I know that when it comes to winter, I'm getting cookies in the mail, right? So I benefit from Christian privilege, even though I'm not a practicing Christian. So then now that I say that there are people who will take points away from me because, oh, she doesn't identify as a Christian. So that's what I mean by privilege, right? The dominant or the subordinated marginalized kind of binary system is whether you magically get the unicorn points or they're magically taken away. As a white person, that is a dominant. I benefit from Christian privilege, even though I don't identify as a Christian. Um, I identify as a queer person. So that would be a subordinated or marginalized identity. Age is really relative. I look eight but I'm actually almost 50. So depending on where I am, I'm either seen as an expert adult or I have blue hair this month. So I'm seen as some like youngin and nobody listens to me. It just depends on the context. So I also used to be a teacher 
And when I would substitute teach, I would often get in trouble by other teachers because I was walking in the hallways because they thought I was a high school student. I wasn't a high school student. I was deep into my 20s. I just look young. Um, so age can sometimes get you and get unicorn points taken away, right? There are other times where I could be standing in line for a restaurant. Remember standing in line for restaurants? I could be standing in line. And I know somebody, right? Or I'm connected to someone in the restaurant and I get to jump the line. I got unicorn points. So I use the word dominant to mean that it comes with that privilege or those unicorn points. And then I use the word subordinated or marginalized because we create this binary system that in order for this, these unicorn points to have value, there has to be at least one other group that doesn't have the unicorn points in order for these unicorn points to have value because it's all a made up system. So depending on which social identity you're talking about, some of which might be state or federally protected, some of which are not. Um, that's what I mean by those words. And it's good for you to review them because not everybody knows all the vocabulary. Awesome. Well, I, I think you gave a great uh, description with lots of, examples and charisma oh. <laughs> yes you know speaking of charisma you know one of the i felt one of the most charismatic performances that i've seen recently um that deals with a difficult situation was amanda gorman at the inauguration phenomenal job exactly so you know when people are given a an opportunity you know they have the option, as you were talking about, of doing the best they can some of the time. And I think she did. She could have been very safe. She could have been very um, non-confrontational. She could have sidestepped everything and just said, yay for the inauguration. We have a new president and had a very simple um, point. But she chose to tackle very difficult topics, but she chose to do it with charm and with charisma and with metaphor and with um, really pulling everyone in. It was extremely inclusive, um, but it was also very much pointing out the diverse perspectives on the topics of, of privilege, mm -hmm. of history, mm -hmm. of where we come from as a country and how we got to this moment in the inauguration and the things that had just happened at the Capitol days earlier, right. Days mm -hmm. Before. So, you know, I couldn't think of a better example of charm and charisma with a difficult situation. So, you know, when people are given a platform, like I said, they have that choice of um, stepping out on a limb and, and, and trying to make a difference or not. And if they can do it with charm and charisma as she did, I think that the impact is so much greater than um, if they come off as arrogant, um, you know, just if they come off as belligerent, whatever, you know. So and what, what would you take on that? Well, I mean, she did a phenomenal job, one, and it's also important to mention that she won her first national award at 17 mm -hmm. and was harassed by security guards that morning when she showed up 
to perform at the inauguration because she's a young woman of color and they weren't used to seeing that at the inauguration. Similarly, when you look at how the media covered people who were sitting in the stands, there were three different women senators whose name I'm forgetting right now, who were mentioned as the wives of the men senators they were sitting near, but they are also senators, right? Like those are those unicorn points, right? Is that you get them and they get taken away and you get them and you get taken away. Uh, When Garth Brooks is like running around hugging everybody and everybody just thought that was fine, right? Like, why are you allowed to go where you're not supposed to go where security is really, really strong? Because it's Garth Brooks, i.e. a white man that people know that aren't necessarily threatened, right? Like, what, what allows for a threat to continue to be a threat? And if we go back to the spoken word, you've mentioned Maya Angelou, you've mentioned Amanda Gorman, your own work, Spoken word is the connection that we all have because it is literally where we and how we spew hatred and how we share love. It's how we get to know each other and it's how we shut each other down. Mm -hmm. So when we start talking about like poetry and beauty and metaphors and comedy and charisma, we have to go back to our grandmothers, our ancestors, and our history, and what happened 14 days ago and what's about to happen in 14 days. Because how we connect with each other, generally speaking, is through art, words, connection, listening, and paying attention. And those equalizing moments allow for all of that to come, right? Like, I found her work to be completely breathtaking. And I also know that there are people who were mortally offended by that she had the audacity to name that anything that the United States did that was bad, right? And what does that mean when you're saying it's in past tense when it's still happening? There's a reckoning of responsibility that we are responsible for. And unfortunately, due to the limitation of language, I just have to use the word responsible multiple times until we actually do it. And I think that the key is to stop decorating and actually start being responsible. And we can do that by noticing our own words and holding space for other people's words. Mm, I agree with that. You know, I think comics, um, and, and I teach AP, and um, I teach regular, I teach, I teach uh, ESL also, but there was a prompt on the AP test a few years ago, and it said that humorous can get away with saying things that other people cannot because of humor and because we give them, as you said, unicorn points, <laughs> we give them the privilege to tell us about ourselves and not get offended, at least not at the moment. Sometimes when people think about it, then they get offended. But in the moment, they're just, ha, 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 ha. oh, that was really funny. Oh, oh, ooh, uh. You know, so um, I think that there have been several comics that have have mentioned that, that, you know, we can get away with things and we need to use our platform to speak out um, on things. Um, do you but, feel like that is part of the reason that you, uh, again, got this calling that you have this comedy and you get to say things? The, the thing that stand up comics. So when people talk about comics, that's one thing, but like. If, if you have a room full of comics, first off, that is not a funny room. 
And it, it's very hard to explain to people who are not comics, but talking about humor is not fun, nor is it funny, because you have to be on the edge of irony and emotion and reality and history and pain and suffering because somewhere in all of those things is a reason to laugh. Mm. That is a, a, a hard surgery that needs to occur that is almost always as equally important of word placement as it is silent placement, right? This is not a fun crowd. We're funny, but we're not fun. Most of us are really messed up kind of people. But what I think is important in that stand-ups will not say this because it's like the unspoken thing. I'm going to turn on a lamp because the sun is setting. Welcome to the Pacific Coast. So I'm realizing, let's see if that works. Is that better? I have half a face. Good job. Okay. So the, the, I, at first it was in my eyes and then I'm like, oh, wait, it's going to get dark. Um, and I know we're going to wrap up relatively soon, but... What I think is important to mention is the permission. So so if we take Amanda Gorman, not a stand-up comic, to my right. knowledge, right? She has permission to articulate a moment in history and nailed it. Yes. Nailed it. Okay. But she didn't have permission to be a jokester. Right. So she wasn't. Humorists have permission to be edgy and funny and possibly even offensive because the way that the setup is you have paid money to sit at a wobbly table, drink watered down beverages that are your mandatory. You have at least like a two drink minimum to eat like tater tots because <laughs> you want to laugh. Yeah. That is both the toughest and the easiest crowd. Because that's why they showed up. I'm not at the DMV, right? Like, that's a different time. Now, as a speaker, I use the DMV and cashiers and Ubers and things like this. That's my test ground. Because if they can laugh when they're not in a setting prepared to laugh, I'm on to something. Mm. I talk about politics and current events. Every subject that my grandmother said you are not supposed to talk about is the only thing I talk about. Because if we can start with guns and abortion and all these other topics that make people super nervous, then we can actually get to that conversation you need to have with your own kid that you're putting off. Mm. Because that's the conversation that actually matters, right? So if you're in a setting where you're expected to laugh and you're, as a comic, trying to make them laugh, you're a new comic, if you're in a space where they're wanting to laugh and your job is to get them to really laugh, then what you're doing is you're connecting things together that are unexpected, that should be painfully serious. They should be heartfeltly suffering and they should be absolutely obvious. And when you put those three things together, you get a great set. That's why most comedy sets are like four minutes, mm. seven minutes long is a big one that's a fancy one a seven minute one and then when people go around and do tours and they have a 20 minute set or 30 minute set or an hour and a half long set you have to know that it might take five years mm. to create that set that you see dave Chappelle do or uh, ali wong do it could take years to create that set and 
it's not going to be super improv based on what's happening in the room, but that's more like a live movie or a theatrical performance. So then if you look at like a Hannah Gadsby or something, you can actually map where she is getting permission from the audience to talk about something that's really going to piss them off soon. But they laughed, which is permission. And then here it comes. And then there's a little foreshadowing and they laughed and that's permission. And here it comes. Um, that's the craft, right? Yeah. So. You know, I, I understand what you're saying from a different perspective. I'm not a comic. Um, people do say I can be very funny and I have some funny poetry, but com- comics and poets have in common that we do pour our hearts out on stage and we do take things in very deeply and then um, regurgitate it in a sense. You know, I heard this one poet and I can't remember his name. He said, poetry is watching me cut myself and bleed all over the stage. You embracing my pain with me. I would say something similar to using humor. Yeah. Because we, to, to really make someone feel something, sometimes you have to feel it so deeply yourself mm-hmm. without any filters, without any, any you know, uh, anesthesia. You have to feel it to the core of your being and mm-hmm. then say, let me really take you in to the depths of this feeling. So you and I will never forget what this feeling is like. And now you know, what it, whatever it is, whatever it is, you know, you know what it is to feel that and to feel it in a way you've never felt it before. And, and so we speak for the people in, in bringing to light things that truths that they don't want to see sometimes, um, things about themselves that they don't want to see sometimes, you know? So I, I think it was, I think it was, Nina Simone that said, the artist has to speak to the generation. The artist must speak to the generation because it's the whole artist's job to speak to the generation. You know, that's what we were born for, to speak the truth to the generation. Um, And I think that that's very powerful in poetry and comedy that we speak truth, unvarnished truth, um, difficult truth, but we do it in a charming way. You know, we do it um, sometimes with a smile, sometimes with a laugh, sometimes with a rhyme. Um, And people are able to take it in and sometimes grow, sometimes change, you know, sometimes learn, sometimes become better. Mm -hmm. I I think I completely agree. And I think the highest compliment I've ever been paid, and specifically, I would say with all of my history and who I am as a person and the work that I choose to do is that I am an invitation Mm. to be an invitation allows people the opportunity to not be available, but they feel invited. And the balance between deciding to come anyway to RSVP and show up, I think that is where my charm, which I totally blame on being a Southern woman (laughs) <laughs> but my charm, my charisma, my storytelling, and my ability to use humor to disarm and then go straight in with all the topics you don't want to talk about. That is how I am an invitation. Well, I want to invite you to show your book one more time and tell people where they can find you. Ta-da! 
you can go to goodenoughnow.com. Um, you can also go to goodenoughnowbook.com and buy a copy if you want. There's also ebooks and audiobooks. And just for you, Karen, I made a book club. Uh, <laughs> feel free. You're welcome. Uh, but if you're interested in doing your own work and being responsible for yourself and having a good time while you're doing it, I am here for you. So thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate that. Where can they find you on social media if they wanted to follow you? I'm on all the things, either as Jess Pettit or Good Enough Now. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you for coming out and talking about charm and charisma and dealing with difficult situations, talking about the power of comedy and storytelling, and just giving us a lot of information about inclusion and diversity and doing good enough some of the time. There you go. It's yeah. energy. Do the best you can with what you got some of the time. Awesome. So thank you guys for joining us and may you walk in Zenergy. Bye. Good night. My name is Zenar Shea and I have a weekly podcast called Zenergy which is Fuel for the Mind, Body, and Soul. And this is the Zenergize Your Life Goal Setting Package, Volume 1. It comes with a workbook, a journal, stickers, a bookmark, tabs, and a QR code where you can find my podcast. And inside this workbook, you're going to have 16 different principles. The first one, I'm going to show you mine, is abundance. You have a place to put pictures that inspire you of role models, also pictures of goals that you want to create, goals, journal prompts, meditations, affirmations, all kinds of things to help you focus on this principle to better your life. And like I said, there's 16 principles. So this is a $15 package that comes with all of these things I've shown you, $21 with shipping and handling, and you can get it at laughsandlyrics.com. So Zenergize Your Life with me. Thank you.